0: of students in Dublin. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, and words from world. I'm Tara O'Shea. I'm delighted today to be joined by writer Claire Odine.
1: Hi, Tara.
0: <laughs> Hi, get now. Claire is an Irish writer based in Switzerland, in Freiburg.
1: Yes, it's uh, Freiburg in German and mm-hmm. Fribourg in French, and uh, and they have both languages there. It's a mixed town.
0: Fantastic, and you have and Switzerland obviously has a very interesting language approach to language which we'll definitely be discussing. You have written a book called The Naked Swiss, and you've written a follow, another different book out this this autumn called The Naked Irish, which is published by Red Stag mm-hmm. and you're very welcome to the show. So what made you write the naked Swiss? what what provoked this and um, tell, tell this tale?
1: Yes, the Naked Swiss well, I had mm, been in Switzerland a bit more than 10 years. And for most of that time, I was working for the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation in their international news section. So I'd written loads of stories about Switzerland, uh, you know, general, about everything, politics, culture, society, economics, whatever. And so I had all of those um, pieces that I was putting together, the jigsaw of understanding the country. And mm-hmm. and then a couple of things came together and uh, sort of... Um, made me think a bit deeper, you know, one thing was that I, I wanted to become a, to get my Swiss citizenship Mm. and that was a big deal. Like I had hesitated for a long time before that, you know, I was reluctant. I was thinking, I didn't, I felt like it might dilute my Irishness in some Mm. way, but there had been a vote about restricting immigration uh, for EU citizens and uh, later there was another vote about automatic deportation for foreigners. Uh, who committed crimes? I mean, yeah. and um, you know, and you know, it is far fetched. Like, I'm not a criminal, yeah. uh, but you know, you never know <laughs> if you when life will when something unexpected will happen. Or, you know, I used to kind of joke and say, if we were on holiday somewhere and there was a natural disaster and the Swiss helicopter would come in <laughs> to mm-hmm. take my husband and my kids, <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, what about me? So, um. <laughs> There was all that, mm. but there was also wanting to vote because vote is voting is massively important in Switzerland. So mm-hmm. that was the, the context, and then the final thing was leaving my job because I'd felt like I'd done enough of the same thing for 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 enough years that I wanted to change, and I was going to go freelance. And uh, it just seemed like the timing. It was like, yeah, this is a good time to really study this place and mm. and and kind of claim it for myself.
0: Absolutely, and we all like. Like a lot of people grow up in Ireland, we have a certain ideas of a or head or Switzerland only comes up in the news certain times in respect to certain topics, usually neutrality, European borders and gun ownership. But then and then you decided to actually take a lot of these topics and basically identify the cliches and can basically tear them apart or get dig deeper into them.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the idea. I mean, originally I, I had a working title of misunderstanding the Swiss and I was—I uh, noticed a lot from the comments on some of the stories that, that I would cover, you know, that there was sort of a bit, a, bit of a misunderstanding or like um, sort of a distorted idea of, of some of the Swiss things. And, and there were quite a lot of people who come to Switzerland um, and don't really settle in very well, Yeah, um, you know, for uh, English speakers. In some cases, that's... Because they are in this special category of of they consider themselves to be a different kind of immigrant that they're yeah. expats and they don't expect to stay for long and um, and they're not fully integrated or speaking the language so they end up kind of they might have a bad ex- few bad experiences and then mm-hmm. then after that there's kind of yeah they, they there's no way back in kind of thing so um, yeah and then you'd see that there was this these people would make jokes to me. Uh, about Nazi gold and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought there hadn't really been anything um, uh, comprehensive, but not too long. Like there's been books about about the war and about the Swiss role in the war. But I, I wanted, I did a chapter on, on um, what was the title of the chapter? Um, yeah, the Swiss helped the Nazis, mm-hmm. question mark is implied, like, yeah. like in the Irish book as well. Um so so yeah it was it was good to finally get into all these subjects in depth and uh, and maybe kind of set the record straight and I kind of thought maybe building some bridges between the Swiss and they and they have a huge foreign born community like it's one in four there.
0: Hmm. Oh wow, that's high.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah yeah it's a uh, well it's you know it's it's the crossroads of Europe and it's a small country so you you if there, you have a lot of cross border workers mm-hmm like um i think it's 600,000 cross border workers they don't count i mean they as yeah. as residents they're mm-hmm. outside they come in every day to work across the border some of them go across the, the lake, G- Lake Geneva. That's a nice commute.
0: That is a beautiful commute. I, many years, it feels like a lifetime ago, I wrote a thesis on the effect of cross-border commuting on the housing market. I was using Ireland specifically as the example, but I was using, for for comparison points, I was using the cross-border commuting in France, Southern France and Switzerland, as well as mm-hmm. the Orison Bridge between Denmark and Sweden. And how that affected things, particularly because so much of state policy is you live here, you work here, you pay tax here, and then when one of those, one of those steps is actually happening in another country, it it, it kind of uh, upsets the apple cart a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it was it was fascinating the fact that what I discovered was housing. It's housing in Switzerland is going to be expensive anyway, but doubly so because every canton is required to be agriculturally self sufficient.
1: I didn't know that.
0: And the idea was that back in the old days, when Napoleon was having was running around Europe, they, they they were concerned that if all the agriculture was in some of the cantons, that if they could basically attack the farms first, they could starve the cities. But if every canton was able to s- sustain itself, they could effectively keep some, as, as much of Switzerland safe as possible.
1: That's very clever. Very
0: clever. <laughs> typical Swiss. Yeah,
1: but I mean, I th- I don't know today. I don't think that they. Uh... They would be it's totally self-sufficient. So we, I
0: think they they say we, we have an avariculture to be self-sufficient, but a lot of it's vineyards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the other thing, when, my one time visiting Switzerland, the Swiss wine is great and they don't sell it anywhere else.
1: No, it's hardly known. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, but it is their first drink of choice. So, I mean, when they're when they're e- drinking wine, which they drink wine with all their meals. And uh, in fact, the Swiss drink a lot. You know, any cha- any opportunity there, they call it the apero, they'll... They'll break open bottles of wine very early in the day, yeah. uh, you know, if there's something to celebrate at work or in, in the family or whatever. Um, but uh, but their own wines, yeah, they they are kind of a, a well kept secret, I suppose. Yeah, yeah.
0: So how is there? What was the response to your book about the naked Swiss in Switzerland? What was the response like that? Like, I mean, did uh, was it mostly aimed for an international audience, about Switzerland, or was it with did Swiss people read it much themselves?
1: Um. Uh, yeah, I think most of the readers ended up being um, people who had an outside connection. Mm. A lot of them would, would have been very long-term residents. Some of them might might have um, foreign parents or something. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, the response I got was, I think a lot of people were, not a lot of people, but certain people were pleased with the chapter on women because um, to have it all in one place, all of the... All of the progress and all of the changes, um, you know, Switzerland was the last country in the Western world to give to grant the vote to women. Oh, yes, and because it was done by referendum, like everything is done by referendum. <laughs> so, in me, and that was in nineteen seventy-two, I think, or, and uh, yeah, so I, even my mother-in-law, when she was having her third child, you know, she she still couldn't vote. Really? Which, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> But if you had put that question to if you'd given that power to male voters, because before that date, there were only male voters Mm. in all the other countries, maybe the women would have had to wait longer. You know, it was uh, the vote came in through through parliaments elsewhere. Votes for women.
0: That's right, and that's when you have parliaments, or when, particularly if they're responding to court rulings or things like that, they can take a decision that people will accept, even if they don't necessarily suggest it themselves. Mm-hmm. And and the same way we've there have there have been unpopular laws passed now that people just got on with very quickly. Even you think about how how close our divorce referendum was. The first divorce referendum was. Well, let's say the one in 1995 now, after, shortly afterwards, everyone who voted against it just forgot they voted against it. Yeah. Or a lot of them did anyway. Yeah, yeah. So this journey, after writing The Naked Swiss, you've now written The Naked Irish. And this is basically about the cliches all about Ireland, which is something we're very interested in here in mother folklore. Yeah. Who do you say, who do you say this book is for?
1: <sighs> well, uh, I suppose, you know, it's for people of for different generations for different reasons. People mm. of my generation born in the 70s um, it's it's a good recap over uh, lots of things like I, I mean I go back to the Iron Age <laughs> and yeah. um, it's, it's uh, the book touches on on history and culture and economics and um, and politics so it makes a, a lot of connections so I think that's satisfying, you know. To mm. to when even when a lot of it might be familiar to you, but it's it's also um, allowing a little bit of soul searching. Um, and then probably for younger readers who might have gaps in their recent history knowledge because mm. it's they were either not born or or too small to remember these things happening. Yeah, things in the seventies and eighties or even nineties. Um, they might only know them by name and. Um, and so, yeah, the book kind of connects the dots. That's
0: great. I am I just know because some of, some of my uh, some of my collaborators in this very podcast have never had a Irish Eurovision win since they've been born. <laughs> and it's just that's just something alarming to me because i thought yeah. that something was so close to our kind of identity mm-hmm. growing up in the 80s and 90s.
1: I, I mentioned Johnny Logan in there. I said that his white suit was the only bright spot in the 1980s. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very much so. Good. Yeah, Johnny Logan, he's, a, he's some man, some man for a man. And he's a man. Massively multilingual man himself, I'm told, now as well. Oh, in, really? Living in Turkey and Germany and all those places now. He, oh,
1: did, did he move to Turkey?
0: I believe he had. God, I
1: heard he was big in Turkey.
0: I think he's, yeah. he lives in Germany and does a lot of work in Turkey and around. But yeah, yeah. it's a, a fascinating guy. Yeah. So it's some of the chapters here, which, kind of, which, as you say, implied question marks. Mm-hmm. The Irish are violent. The Irish are great writers. The Irish are Catholic. The Irish women are forced to be reckoned with. The Irish hate the English. And the Irish are friendly, <laughs> among others. So definitely food for thought here. Were some of these um, ideas, these cliches about Ireland inspired by your your travels in Switzerland and the rest of Europe and questions you were asked about Ireland?
1: Yeah, they were. And um, by time spent away looking back and things I notice now that I mightn't have noticed before. But also, I'm also kind of picking up on the way the Irish are represented in the wider English speaking world. Yeah. Like I say in the in the introduction or the foreword there that Ireland entered the English speaking world and then became defined by by the others in that world. Yeah. Um, like you know the Portuguese wouldn't have the same complexes that we have because they live in a Portuguese world. Yeah. They decide who they are. They weren't. They're not given a role by anybody else. Whereas the Irish were, you know, the rogues or the, the surly servants or the troublemakers. Yeah um and and the other you know, or the entertainer,
0: yeah so they were they were effectively consuming propaganda about themselves from within their other language from, from another country, and it's uh
1: yeah, and perpetuating it like with the the irish americans they they hold on to a lot of that, and then they they feed films back to us, yeah. Um, you know, the Quiet Man and many, many more. You know, that it's
0: reinforce a, those ideas. It really is a fun, funny thing—the idea that we can, we're reinforcing those kind of stories about, about themselves as like a story about a story about a story. But mm-hmm. it's, it's something I suppose it's been said that the Quiet Man is no is, is as as it's, it's as mythologized as as John Ford's films about the Wild West were, and that they it was, he, that's that's just how he filmed places. Mm-hmm. But it's um, it's it is really interesting that I suppose we. How we we see we see a version of Ireland as, as as has been imagined by by the children of immigrants. abroad. it's a it's, it is a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think, say? Who do you say is the most famous Irish person in Switzerland? Or because you know the way we we would say that. Um, like the most famous Irish person in England is very different from the most famous Irish person in Australia and the, the different countries. And yeah. say Stephen Roach would be such a big person in France, oh, whereas, yeah. Yeah. whereas in Spain it would probably be a, a footballer rather than an actor.
1: I never thought about that before. My God, I, is, I hope it's not Bono, but I think it might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I, it might be. <laughs> you two, uh, no no, no other musical act has been as big as them mm-hmm. um, since 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 their heyday. That's and uh, who else would there be well I suppose they know um, Pierce Brosnan of course yeah and but in terms of kind of statesman hmm. nobody
0: probably not no it's always funny because when, when, when I was in Argentina and I told someone I was Irish they said oh you mean like Diloressa Redan <laughs> I thought it was just lovely that she was the first person they thought of when they thought of Ireland yeah, I, I yeah. hope she knew that
2: yeah yeah mm. yeah
0: so and then when you were when you were writing this book and like, when you say like you've written a chapter here about the Irish being great writers and you include a element here of old Irish, which we always like to see. Is Agar Igna Niagara Ren Moramin Don Lechred my normally does our old Irish pronunciation here, it's slightly different, but mm-hmm. I hope that wasn't too bad. But that translates as better is the wind tonight tosses the oceans white hair i fear not the coursing of a clear sea by fierce warriors from the Lochland. being the vikings of course lots Mm -hmm. of kennings there and this part about the irish being being great writers obviously you and i being writers is something we like that to see is this something that you reckon this is well regarded in in continental europe that we have a reputation for writing
1: yes that that is definitely that reputation is is assured it's out there Um, And if you go into a Swiss bookshop, you'll see in the English section, and they all have an English section to begin with, which Mm -hmm. is notable in itself. There's no German section here. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. um, Yeah. And um, you'll see Irish names there. You'll see new releases. Anyone who's done well in Ireland, they're they're distributed uh, right across and in the original English and translations as well. So one of the things that I was saying well, I was saying a few things in the in the writers chapter and like not to take away from from the success of the Irish but one thing is that this is held up this is what Irish excellence looks like mm-hmm. you know this was the first thing we excelled at and we've really clung to that so people who want to do well in life you know the the, the dream is to be a, write, an, a writer in Ireland because writers are so well celebrated um but and um, we also have this advantage of being in the English-speaking world, and the, this massive dominance that English has, you know, in terms of what's translated and what's what's read around the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we have the UK market and the American market. Like we know them quite well. Like we're we're very closely linked, and we've been yeah. spying on them for years, mm-hmm. or been in and out of their society as observers. So I suppose we. We know how to, and we've got this sort of exotic touch in their eyes, yeah, so all of these things have helped Irish writers continue to be successful, but it is a, it is a brand as well and and maybe some Irish writers are get more noticed than they would if they were Danish or something else. Mm. and you know maybe we're not like super super talented.
0: <laughs> I don't know. yeah, we're just we're, we're unusually well placed in, in the in the worlds of English English language publication.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. That's that's a good thing. I think it's, it's been a, it's been a remarkable decade for Irish fiction, especially uh, especially Irish fiction by women. Mm-hmm. And uh, long may it continue. It's just. Uh, some people reckon that the that the Celtic Tiger represented a slight dip in Irish publishing because, so, but maybe the recession maybe led to re-energising of the story. But I'm I'm wary of that kind of thinking
1: because because we have to suffer.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to produce we to, art, we have to suffer to produce art, or we have to. Yeah. We can't be too busy in our work. Mm. So, um, you um, tell so when you moved to Switzerland, did you how was your German and your French?
1: Uh my French was was pretty good. I had I studied languages in Trinity. I studied French and Russian. Oh? Yeah. And um and I worked in Russia for for a while. Um so my but I didn't have a word of German. Um and then I ended up um well, my husband is Swiss German, so like the only thing I knew was see Heil and halt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> pretty bad. Nachtro.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um where we live, it's right on the border of where the German, the m- German-speaking majority part of the country is. Like the capital, Bern, is about half an hour away. Mm. And um, so I straight away w- knew that I wanted to learn German. I needed to learn German, otherwise I'd be confined to one quarter of the country. And uh, and I went and did um, language classes. They have a, um, a di- uh, supermarket chain called Migro. And Megro also um, runs adult education schools, yeah. So uh, lots of people do Megro courses and they do language courses. So that's where I I started my German, learning the days of the week, literally starting from scratch. Um, And and then the rest, there was the difficulty of uh, the standard German that I was learning was different to the dialect that people speak. I mean, it's as different as... Donegal Irish and Munster Irish. So mm. imagine you go to a class where you're learning Munster Irish, and you have all the spellings and terms and everything, and then that, that's all ignored. By the I mean, mm. in the dialect, they they mix up the cases and they do what they like, kind of thing, yeah. and they gobble up the words. You know, like instead of ich bin, it's iba. You know, oh yes, they don't even yeah. Mm. So so then I had to learn the two together, um, but I did. I think from my Irish language, growing up with Irish made it easier to pronounce Swiss German because it's a very, there's a lot of <laughs> sounds in there and uh, and that wasn't a problem. And then, then the rest was just, was through necessity of, of learning it and ending up working in Bern. Hmm. And this is the thing about language is the necessity thing, you know, and when that's taken away and it's kind of taken away from the beginning with Irish, it's, it's you're not forced to speak it. So you, it, it um, yeah, it can go. By the way, it, it can
0: slide, particularly yeah. uh, in those in those after school years. You can you can find that like as an un, unexercised muscle, it can it can it can go bad qu- quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame, particularly as you say there, that Irish does actually give you a good grounding for learning those other languages, particularly in the pronunciation. It's so interesting how often people say how oh, their Irish helps with their German.
1: Yes, true, mm-hmm. and Russian as well. Oh, yeah, Russian because Russian has the kh as well. It also has the e sound like b- mm-hmm. um, which lots of people, uh, Anglo speakers can't do.
0: But we can, because you have we. Yes. <laughs> and a puppy in Russian is Chinnock, isn't it? Like Chinook.
1: Um, I don't know the word puppy. Sabaka is dog.
0: Because obviously a Chinook is an Irish, and Chinnock, I think, was because their they, oh. helicopter called, was that a wolf or a puppy? I think Chinnock was their name. I always remember mm. that as being the Irish-Russian connection.
1: Oh, okay, and I once heard that the word for fox in the Berber language mm-hmm. was also something like Shanach. Really? Yeah, yeah. But maybe, maybe I'm mixing it up with something else. Mm, I'll have to yeah. look into that. That's great. Yeah.
0: So, do you like? Did you find that learning Irish in school kind of gave you a st- <laughs> helped in a way towards?
1: Um, mm. Yes. Well, I think like yourself, you had uh, Irish from was it your dad? Yeah, at home. And, um, and my mother comes from Connemara, and she was part of this generation who were, you know, the. The state was still trying, and maybe, I don't know if they believed in it, but they were still trying to revive the language.
2: Mm.
1: So they were recruiting native speakers of Irish to be primary school teachers Yes. and giving them, before free secondary education, giving them scholarships. And she was one of those, one of that batch. So she got, you know, everything paid for, and teacher training colleges, secondary, and then teacher training college. And then she started teaching... Uh, she taught in two or three places. She ended up in Scalorcon in Monkstown. and She Mm. stayed there for 42 years. So she like spoke Irish to us as children. And, you know, I heard my first word was "ishke," Um, and so Irish for me was just the natural language, Mm. you know, and, um, which makes it kind of, it's kind of sad that I feel my Irish like has got so depleted, you know, even though it feels natural to me, um, I don't have the vocabulary anymore.
2: That's real shame. Yeah,
1: yeah. But um, and then the other languages I've learned since then have also messed things up a bit.
0: <laughs> so it's, you, you you occasionally drop an Irish word or a French word into your Irish. I've seen it happen all the time.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I I I do a bit of that, and and I think also um, one of the like I definitely would have been someone who wanted to bring my kids up in Irish. That mm. w- if I'd if I'd if they'd grown up here. Um. But you know they would probably sue me if I <laughs> <laughs> if I spoke Irish to them instead of English, and that was their you know that they wouldn't be able to have the native English mm. um, advantage. Um, so yes, yeah, so I feel a bit sad that that they don't have it. But I mean, they they have a few songs and uh, phrases like into the lava and things like that.
0: That's good. Yeah. And obviously, you you have your you have children who are growing up, in Switzerland, a very different country with a different approach to to language culture and language learning and how do you do you see it just happening from from schools or just from society the way the languages are being picked up to when you obviously have your own memories of growing up in in ireland and learning language school and seeing that now i mean i'm how old are so roughly
1: um i have uh twins who are 13 and a nine-year-old um all girls and uh and actually um they they, sh- they, sh- they should, because it's majority French speaking where we live, mm. in our neighborhood and in the town. But uh, there are schools for the German language kids oh, yeah. too, separate. Uh, they should be really good at French by now. Also because they went to creche, where people only spoke French. But I know my youngest, she didn't speak a word. She was three years in the creche and she never spoke to anybody. I mean, she, re- she was really like, these are not my people I'll just get through the day, but I'm not going to communicate <laughs> with them because mm. I ended up coming back here when she was three for, for one school term as an exception. It was And uh, from day one, she, she was happy to talk to the teachers because in the, in the play school yeah. because, she, oh, they're like, they talk like my mum. <laughs> yeah, so they actually officially start learning a, a second or their first foreign language, a national language in third class. Okay. And, um, and... And I think it's 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 strange. It's like they're given books that are really complex from the word go. Like it's mm. not they they don't start with really really basic books and basic phrases. You know, they're okay. they're kind of thrown into it.
0: They don't have a brown or kind of like brand the dog. No, or they or brand. they
1: don't have these little readers with the very very simple sentences. Uh, maybe that's because they ha they assume the children have some exposure already. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, but but yeah, I mean, Switzerland is successfully, well, not just trialing, three national languages and the fourth one is Romance, is not is not national in the sense that not all this documentation has to be translated into Ro- yeah. uh, Romance because it's such a tiny language numbers-wise. I think it's only 50,000 people. Um, but a lot of Swiss people don't use the other languages on a daily basis and they wouldn't want to. Yeah. You know, they... they they stay in their language region. In hmm. fact, even in their canton, they're very canton focused because they've got their yeah. own police force and their own government and their own everything, you know, hospitals. They they just, it's a big deal to cross the cantonal border more, more I think, than counties.
0: That's extraordinary. Yeah. It's, it's it's funny. And then they have so much direct democracy as well. And I, I would like those where like, there's accountability structures within the canton in a way that don't exist in local government in the same way.
1: Yeah, yeah, they mm. are much more like little states, mini states nearly. <laughs> join us in Cork on October 13th that's a Sunday afternoon in the Spalpine Faunuk, where we will be taking part in the Cork Podcast Festival follow Cork Podcast Festival on Twitter for all the details tickets are 18 euro and they're selling like hotcakes so make sure you get yours join us in Dublin as well on the 17th of November we'll be taking part in the Dublin Podcast Festival we're going to do a double header in the Grand Social with the amazing Irish passport so not to be missed if you're around Dublin look up Dublin Podcast Festival on Twitter or you can go to podcast festival.com
0: claire one of the chapters in your book is about the myth or the cliche or the the perception that the irish hate the english as you know at the moment there's a bit of a a bit of a kerfuffle with the (laughs) with, with with the brexit process and how they leave the united kingdom leaving europe will affect the border in on the island of ireland and Obviously, one of the one of the examples for one of the possible models for Brexit is the Swiss model. It's one of the less popular models for some reason, which is ex- which I wonder how is that perceived in Switzerland that their version of partial partially being out of Europe is seen as a as a terrible option by the Brits.
1: Well, yeah, Switzerland is a special case, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, their arrangement is very hard to replicate because mm-hmm. they. Uh, if you if you think that the the british were married uh, yeah. uh, let's take it as a marriage relationship yeah. for 42 years or whatever it is um up until the vote um the and now they have all the complication of unraveling that and what happens with the obligations they had before and let's say they have a shared mutual a shared child in, yeah. in northern ireland um but the swiss are more like a civil partnership you know that they and they put all those they started from they put all those pieces together over a long period of time. Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah. So the, they,
0: they gradually built a bespoke arrangement as opposed to yeah. being in and then yeah. just having to leave. Yeah, yeah. and yeah.
1: they did have. Um, I wonder, is it nineteen ninety two? From off the top of my head, they had a vote to to join the European Economic Area, hmm. and um, and at that time there were a couple of other countries. Austria, um, maybe maybe Norway, maybe they changed their mind, but who were that the EEA was sort of created for them as a kind of a stepping stone to full membership.
0: Yeah, and Iceland as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: and and um, so Switzerland wasn't a complete outlier. Like it had it had sort of a free trade agreement from the from the early seventies, which was identical to the one those other neutral countries had, and they. They took those countries as, um, um, you know, countries with with, with a shared um, profile or whatever yeah. to them, um, and then uh, then it came up to the point where they were going to join the EEA with a view, but it was an option of of full member of changing that to full membership at a future date, and they had a vote coming up, um, which which w- looked like it was going to go through, and then they would have had. Almost everything that they ended up building themselves, they would have had in the EEA. Uh, but then there was a very, very su- successful campaign by the Swiss People's Party, and it, they really freaked people out about the EU membership. And it turned into an EU membership vote instead of an EEA vote, and yeah. and it went the other way. Just just uh, you know fifty, early fifty four or something percent. So and that that completely uh, derailed, you know everything that was in place beforehand and. Mm. and and you know that was a time of, uh, you know, the all the change in Eastern Europe and and the uh, things were being reconfigured. And I think the Swiss were worried. Certainly, the establishment or the, the government were worried about being left behind. Yeah. I mean, now they kind of sell it as like, oh, look how cool we are. We're not in the EU, and yeah. we've got all these special bilateral agreements just for us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But 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 when they when they were sort of they weren't they didn't choose that road. They were kind of catapulted down that road. And then they had to start from scratch and rebuild. They have like 120 bilateral agreements for all the different sectors and all the different imaginable connections mm. that that they have with the EU. And like they they are as as integrated as you could be without being a member. Yeah, you know they pay money in and they take they copy paste EU legislation. Mm-hmm. Like this is you know the, the the some of the British might think that the that they are totally free, but they're not. I mean they're not going to have different standards for how many millimeters wide a, a toothpaste tube is. You know, mm-hmm. they, they go, all that stuff doesn't matter, all that detailed stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, the, it's the perception of it, the idea of the yeah. taking back control. Yeah. And this is what comes into that. And then I've seen that that's when we think about borders again and how, and how, how those kind of controls are going to affect things and how those topics just kind of takes us back to Ireland's relationship. those Some of those things, they, those... Though I think possibly one of the reasons Ireland's relationship with Europe is a little bit complicated, it hasn't been. It hasn't been entirely positive. It's been, it's been hugely positive, though. Um, but it does. I do think that because an awful lot of European Court of Justice decisions in Ireland have been progressive. Against what Ireland wanted, that's that's generally led to particularly say when Mary Robinson and David Norris went to the to European Court of Justice about homosexuality and several other decisions like that. That the European Court of Justice has basically forced Ireland to actually be more progressive in a way that people have actually accepted those decisions. There haven't been as many. I don't think there's been in the in the UK. I don't think they've necessarily had that same relationship with the ECJ. But that's getting. I, mean, I'm, yeah. I, know, I know that's not what I brought you here to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, but going from there, the relationship between Ireland and England, and or particularly the English, as opposed to just uh, the British, because that's a more complicated question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's complicated.
1: Yeah, it's definitely complicated. Mm. You know, there has been bad blood there, and you know, I I think in terms of whether the Irish hate the English, like there is a spectrum. I mean, there are people mm. who are like that. I mean, they do they get they get it with their mother's milk, and they're just. Mm. They, they, they have an aversion to, to everything to do with the English. Like, remember the statue in Stephen's Green, the haunt, haunted soldier or the haunting soldier from the First World War, representing the fallen soldiers of the First yeah. World War. That was vandalized. That's, that's just a very, mm. you know, how would I describe? Raw. What the, yeah, what did, that's just a very visceral thing.
2: Yeah, I think P- they, the
1: people the people who feel that strongly anything that represents British or Englishness is bad. So, but I think they are quite a small minority, and um, most people are too involved in in the you know the closeness between the two countries. You know, yeah. we we're moving back and forth for work, for family, for for tourism, for sport. You know, we're much closer to them than than we like to think. Maybe mm-hmm. you know, and some of our identity has been. In saying that, you know all the things the English are, we are not. You know that was that's maybe from the the, fa- the founding days of the state. Yeah. That was that was the blueprint. You know,
0: I do. I think, I think new, yeah. new countries po- post, I guess post-revolution countries, post uh, independence countries, they have a very much strong idea of what they aren't and what they are. And I think that that's definitely been a, a trend in Ireland. One thing was particularly in the post-Brexit era. I think Anglo-Irish relations were at probably at an all-time high right before, right before the Brexit vote. you think with the Queen's visit? Yeah. and things like that mm-hmm. and particularly I mean um and for for, for people of our generations the the experience of the the Jack Charlton era of, of football and mm-hmm. of, of, of accepting the, the that people have a binary relationship being a, have a little bit of English and a little bit of Irish in, yeah. their, in their family history mm-hmm. and and just accepting that that there's, there is that natural complexity in in Irish identity then and then seeing the way Ireland was spoken about in those post-Brexit months and years. Yes, it's it's so
1: disappointing.
0: As if they didn't know we were watching. (laughs) It was the worst thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, I'm not sure how how Ireland was talked about in the Swiss media during those post-bailout years. I mean, maybe they may have have been some unkind sentences, but we never knew.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And we are obsessively keeping track of of everything. Yes. Um, Yeah, I think... um, it's like the worst characteristics of the English. The char- characteristics that we dislike are are, are now centre stage, mm. and um,
0: I do think people people are able to make and make a separation in their mind between English people and you know the establishment. So, and that's and when but when I, I do see probably more of this online, especially there's, there's a candour towards expressions like Brits out mm-hmm. and other kind of. Um, I know are kind of our Republican slogans and, or yeah. in a way that probably would have been, would have been alarming five, five years earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's also uh, terribly reckless and, um, you know, it's one thing kind of badmouthing the Irish. There has been some of that, um, mm-hmm. but, um, although we're pretty critical ourselves, um, yeah. but I think it's, it's the, it's the, this blithe lack of awareness, like, I mean, the, I saw the doc, um, It's like a doc. No, it's not a docudrama. It's a fictional. It's a dramatization of the Leave campaign um, uh, around the time of Brexit, and it's got Benedict Cumberbatch. It plays Dominic Cummings.
0: The big switch.
1: I can't remember what it was called. But there was that. I ended up seeing that in the same week that that I watched uh, Cameron's interviews, or one of Cameron's interviews, and it's just like the the word that is always missing. There's never even a sentence. It's just Ireland does not exist in these things, and it's this is the Team GB yeah. mentality, you know, the cutting off and the forgetting of of um, of their their responsibilities in Northern Ireland, and um, and um, yeah, it's it's the most recent polls in in the UK. I mean, not even among Conservative members, but. You know, they wouldn't mind, your average English person wouldn't mind if Northern Ireland just went away.
0: Yeah. And yeah. this is, it's hard to see how some the the let's fund and red bus uh, levers would actually th- consider the money given towards, uh, ostensibly given towards the EU, that they'd be happy to subsidise. This perception that, that Northern Ireland is a dead weight mm-hmm. uh, doesn't actually stand up to much scrutiny, apparently. Um, the I think the idea when you actually factor in how much uh, Northern Irish taxpayers are paying towards, you know, kind of military expenses, royal families, national debt, those kinds of things and but uh, but this perception that Northern Ireland is a dead weight and that the it's being generously subsidised by taxpayers in Surrey and Sussex, I'm not sure that they'd necessarily yeah, be think that the they prize the Union and poll of poll after poll suggests that they are that they don't prize the union as much as I think, and it makes sense if you look at it in the context of the of the way the referendum was fought. If they had, a, if they fought a referendum about the union that way, it's I doubt many people in, in the in England would vote for it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that the on the Irish side, you know, there were I think the Irish government made great efforts to mm-hmm. point out, you know, the the problem with Brexit. You know, yeah. the the closer the further away they move from the EU, the the less. The more complications it, it creates for for us, and uh, mm. and that would just wasn't wasn't listened to, um, or I suppose I just thought they'd get away with it.
0: It does feel that way sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So and, uh, and you have a chapter here about the perceptions of of United Ireland and what the United Ireland might be as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to say anything about that one,
1: or uh, not? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, mm. Well, we were we were just talking about the. The cost. My, my, I had to get a taxi in here because of the mm-hmm. the problem on the on the on the, the track, the train track, with the mm. the stormy seas coming in.
2: With the stormy seas, my
1: taxi driver was uh, was um, giving out yards about people who um, kind of tried to talk us out of a United Ireland. Yeah, you know, and um, in terms of the the cost, like I what I have seen figures, Mm -hmm. uh, 10 billion is is mentioned as as the the, the kind of the cost of Northern Ireland, that it doesn't produce as much as it costs to the the exchequer. Um, But if the, uh, I don't, the economic, um, the economic situation is not necessarily a barrier to to, a change on the, you know, whether it's a a confederation of the two parts or a single country. Because as we've seen with the the disappearing of the border since since the single um, single European market, that mm-hmm. the all Ireland economy um, ha, has developed in kind of logical organic ways. You know, you go to yeah. your nearest supplier. It doesn't matter if they're on the other side of the border or not. Yeah, this is what we we risk losing with Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know, you know, maybe like there's bound to be synergies, things that don't need to be doubled up. Yeah. you know, between um. If the two countries, if the two parts of the island were were working as one,
2: yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I just the main problem comes back to the ho- potentially having a hostile mi- minority in the north that would, you know, if, for them it's just it's a massive psychological um, barrier to go through. From, I mean, their entire uh, culture is is about being in the majority and, mm-hmm. and dominating and controlling. That yeah. space and and they they will, I not give that up easily.
0: It's yeah. It's it, I think there's like like the Swiss. We have a certain experience with referendums. And if something like that was going to be discussed in the future, who knows? And we, we might be having those discussions in the context of Brexit. You'd like to think maybe we can bring British people who've lived in Ireland happily for years to the front of the conversation, so happy by Ireland, I mean the Republic of Ireland mm-hmm. and just talk about some of those things. Certainly, it's uh, yes the. There, there was a certain cost. Based, you, you we can measure the certain costs in Northern Ireland, but then you consider the, the what could be opened up if you looked at the top north northwest corner of the island and how many kind of airports and universities and how many houses for under hundred grand and <laughs> all those things you could get there and what could be done if yeah. that was a single entity planning that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and yeah. Sh- and Seamus Mallon has pointed out that um, he's very much on the. Tread, tread softly, side, mm-hmm. you know, and he he doesn't believe if there's a border poll that it, it should never be. Yeah, as we've seen with Brexit, if it's fifty-one percent, that's 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 not enough. it's does not going to work. It has mm-hmm. it has to be. He believes a majority in both communities. I think I don't know, mm-hmm. but I mean, the, the, there can be no forcing. This will have we'll ha- this will have to come about through yeah. charm and reason. Yeah, yeah.
0: Very much so, and I think that's uh, that. We, like, I don't think anyone, anyone down here wants to barge into that on either side. We we're looking forward to seeing how it goes. Mm-hmm. So, before we wrap up, Switzerland referendums, How do you find they? Do they think they they go to it? Do you think it works well? The more referendums, and more often system.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's a bit of referendum fatigue there. Um, oh. Yeah, because they have referendums uh, four times a year, mm-hmm. and you might have two or three at a time you get the big envelopes in the po- and and they're and they do postal voting. Oh. Majority of people vote before polling day. You can go in and vote on the day. Mm-hmm. Um but they that's why they get their results so quickly. They'll have the results on the day. Um 90% of people vote by, vote by post and um and some of the stuff is seriously technical. You know, it's it might be to do with tax regimes for for foreign companies or Mm. Not all of it you know it lends itself well to be debated or explained you yeah. know so people just I suppose they they opt out if if it's too complicated and then there'll be certain issues that will get people mm. really interested but but um but you also have um those kind of votes on a local level as well. you might have that for a local bridge you know if it's you know to is are you prepared to pay this much for it you know out mm-hmm. of the out of the state or the cantonal coffers? Um, so, but it's yeah. I mean, I do think that the power, the power to the people thing, is to be valued. Like,
2: yeah.
1: for example, the abortion referendum, we had to wait so long for 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 the government to be ready to move to yeah. to uh, you know it, that that issue was shirked for for decades. Yeah. And there, you know, if you go out and collect if a hundred thousand signatures, you know, it's usually kind of pressure groups or mm. even political parties who go out once they have those signatures, they 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 will they can submit a referendum, but they'll have a text together and get the whole country to vote on it. So yeah, yeah I, I agree open. there. Yeah,
0: I think yeah the, the the eighth referendum probably would have passed three years earlier if if, if, it, if it had gone to poll three years earlier, but they were able to delay it that long. I think mm-hmm. and, refer- and referendums probably do let politicians off the hook a bit sometimes.
1: Yeah, and there's one more <laughs> a cool mm-hmm. thing about the Swiss system is that. That you can challenge laws as well. So, if the the parliament is trumped by the people, if the parliament passes a law, and you disagree with it, say we're uh, you know in a group of um, parents mm. against uh, because there was a, a law change about uh, sanctions for for um, child abuse um, criminals. Yeah, like if you for that you only need fifty thousand signatures. You can challenge a law and. Um, before it'll be finalized and, and come into force, it then can be voted on. Well, yeah, just again through through collecting signatures. So you go to the market, uh, the food market on a mm. Saturday and there's all people that people going around with clipboards collecting signatures all the time.
0: Good stuff. Mm. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Irish word? We like to ask all our guests. <laughs>
1: mm. Well, I, I um, there's one word I, I say uh, I use for my kids. They don't mm. even know it's an Irish word. Okay. I just don't. I don't use the English word forehead. I don't like it, so I mm. say bahish, Bahish. So I like bahish. Um so I use that. And um, and then that that'll be confusing for them if they're ever in, in, in <laughs> hospital in England or something. <laughs> and I really like uh, Ballsbridge in Irish, Drahad na na Yeah, it's
0: it's cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah,
1: it's a nice cool. sound. Yeah,
0: it sounds better than Ballsbridge. That's for sure. <laughs>
1: <Yeah.
0: laughs> Clarity. It's been mm. an absolute pleasure to have you on, on the show. Where can people buy your book?
1: It's my pleasure too. Thank you very much <laughs> there. Um well, it's available uh, I would say in all good bookstores. Uh, it's available around the country, uh, definitely in Dubray and it was launched in Hodges Figgis and um and yeah, and if they don't have it, you can ask for it and and they'll order it in or you can buy it directly from mentorbooks.ie.
0: Mentorbooks.ie. Thank you so much. Till the next time. It's a salon from me. Bye. <music>